This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, this episode is made possible only by my patrons. And this week, I have to thank the patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days, and they are... Christopher, Amelia, Joshua, Luke, Patty D, Jared, Marky Moon, Jack, Amanda, Jessosaurus Rex, and Amy. Thank you so much. You are my personal lords and saviors, and you are keeping me from from having to take my pet hissing cockroaches, train them to be a cockroach circus, and then we take them on the road together, and then also training my cats to be a cat circus, and then my one tarantula could be like the one acrobat. So like a whole... like like pet circus on the road, but I understand that circuses take an enormous amount of work. They're very labor intensive. There's also lots of meth involved is what I've heard from other circus, uh, from, from other circus people. So I don't want that for me. Do you want that for me? My cats definitely don't want that. So to avoid this terrible fate, Go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer, Timothy McPherson, now progressive Christian. Uh, and I talk about politics, talk about the news, talk about culture, uh, events that happen online. The episode that we recorded this morning was about the Asbury revival that's happening right now in Kentucky. And we discussed the Hogwarts legacy controversy, the video game that is blowing up online. So if that is interesting to you, then please subscribe for just $1. I am very cheap. Just $1 grants you access to my sister's laughing at me right now. Uh, uh, I am very cheap. You can buy me for just $1 and you get access to new content every single week. Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe to my newsletter at stephenbradfordlong.com. I try to write an article every single week. I cover topics like mysticism, contemplative practice, meditation, Satanism, atheism, or as I like to call it, non-theism. The article that I'm working on right now is about how one thing that a lot of more conservative religions get right is that they recognize a deep human need for religious structure in society, and that there is a large group of people who deeply yearn for that religious structure. And I think one of the failures of some of my fellow atheists is that they fail to apprehend that genuine need. And I think that we need to answer that need in a meaningful way. So if that is interesting to you, then please subscribe to my newsletter. Finally, one last piece of housekeeping. Please join my Discord server. It's a really fun community. There are people there from all different backgrounds. There are Christians there. There are atheists there. Normie, you know, normie boring atheists. We still love you, though. And also, of course, lots of Satanists from various backgrounds. And there's interesting conversation going on all the time there. Every day, there's a new conversation happening, and the conversation is wide-ranging, and there's lots of productive conversation and disagreement. So there's a link for that in the show notes as well. Most of the conversation that happens about my content happens on the Discord server. I am trying to uh, kind of move the community away from big social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter because those are very unsafe and unsustainable for small creators like myself and they just are not productive places and instead moving the community to more secure and private and healthy contexts like discord so please do join the discord server if you want to talk about my work or other things 
Okay, all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome one of my favorite people on the planet who also happens to be my sister, Elizabeth Schultz. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I have the rare privilege of being your older sister. And, yes. and you oldest. have the privilege of being the yeah, oldest. That's right. <laughs> and you have the privilege of being my little brother. So there That's, you go. It's a win win. That's true. No, this is a first in sacred tension history. Um, <laughs> a, a family member has never been on the show before. So tell us some about who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, uh, notably, I am your older sister. And I the just most important part. The most important part, and I, I want to shout out for our other sister, Rebecca, because she's also awesome. She's the best. <laughs> she's also the way more chill one. She's like the peacekeeper. She's she is. she is so she's much sweeter than both of us are. <laughs> <laughs> we're the problem problem causers. We're the problem. We're the problem children for sure. And she is the middle <laughs> one who has always had to like maintain peace. That's true. That is so true. All right. So we love Rebecca. Um, okay. So about myself, I am an army wife, uh, which has created a very interesting lifestyle for myself and my family. I've got three boys and we are currently living in Southwest Oklahoma. And then everything else I do comes out of my very deeply held core values. And so I'll just list two things that kind of define who I am that flow from those core values. And the first thing is that I'm a classical homeschooler and that comes from my core value of the, the, of the family unit and the great and amazing and crazy duty of parents to raise their children to be thinkers and leaders and responsible citizens. So that's who I am. I'm a classical home educator. The other thing that I am is a homesteader. <laughs> we try to raise as much of our own food as possible uh, in a sustainable, honoring way. Uh, and that comes out of our my core value of stewardship that we have this this world uh, in this life that we are to take care of uh, the flora and the fauna on our little strip of land, but also our own lives. And so uh, that affords us the opportunity to really teach our children those those skills as well. So really quick Beautiful. things about me. Beautiful. I love that you started with who you are and what you do. You started with your principles. Yeah. So there's a reason why I invited you on the show. And I just want to lay this groundwork first for the conversation, but also for my audience. I think that in terms of religious and political ideals, I think that we are probably very different. Not probably. I know that we are. We are very, very different. Yes. I believe that more and more we are living in a culture of retreat. And I think that, we, that this culture of retreat is tearing at the fabric of our society. And this culture of retreat is one where all of us, myself included, are retreating to our intellectual fortifications socially. A, a, a neutral public square where people can have good faith conversation, that is hard in the best of times. That, is, that goes against human nature. That is contrary to our evolutionary coding. That is very, very hard for us. And so it's, that is hard for us at the best of times. And I fear that religiously, culturally, and politically, we live in a culture of retreat. And I see nothing but enormous harm coming from that. I've really wanted to have someone on the show with whom I could try to explore and model healthy conversation. It's been hard for me to find someone who 
on online a public figure uh, on the conservative end who I kind of trust enough to comport themselves well enough <laughs> in in my you know as, with me on a show you know it's been hard to to find someone who I thought would behave well um, on the show with me but I know you to be someone of good character and someone who I know will behave well and in good faith um <laughs> and fine behave well <laughs> uh not not resort yeah i mean no that's a good question not resort to um demeaning me or my audience not resort to caricatures yeah. of of me or my audience i know that whatever disagreement whatever disagreements we have that you really try hard to engage with the best version of it. And so I know you to be someone of good character and I've really, really enjoyed the conversations that we've had over the past several, uh, several months of, of exploring our differences and similarities. So this is kind of an experiment. I've never done something like this before on the show really, but I think it's important. And so yes. That is that is the groundwork that I want to lay here. And also, the reason I think it's important is because culturally, if we don't use our words, the only alternative is coercion. That's it. Mm -hmm. We have two choices culturally between the right and the left and all permutations of that between religious and non-religious or different religions and, and different ideologies. The, we have two choices, which is talk to each other or in the long term, it resorts to coercion. And that's mm -hmm. it. Those are our only choices. And I would much prefer using our words over fighting, literally. So that said. I would agree. Do you have any comment? <laughs> do, you, do you have any, any feedback on that? Yeah, I, I do. And uh, as you're talking, I'm reflecting about how that, that is the essence of the great tradition of the West is this idea of dialogue and having conversations and wrestling through these ideas that don't seem to mesh or, or might conflict and, and weeding out, teasing out, what, what do we mean by these big ideas? And that is, that is the intellectual history of Western culture. That's one of the reasons why I'm a classical educator is to expose my kids to centuries of ideas that are still ongoing and have that conversation, that ongoing conversation about, well, what is truth? Okay, people back in the Greco-Roman world, they thought this, what do you think about that? Does that still apply? Let's wrestle with these ideas. So that that um, discipline of wrestling with ideas is so needed for cultural construction, but also for cultural maintenance and for moving forward. So I'm, I'm all for this, woohoo! To quote my friend Jonathan Rausch, who wrote The Constitution of Knowledge and uh, Kindly Inquisitors, the, the great innovation of modern liberalism is we kill each other's hypotheses instead of each other. That, that, is, the, that is the great innovation of, I believe, the Enlightenment. With that said, we, I, we have some topics to discuss and these are just very preliminary. These are, these are just like very like big picture preliminary questions and I think that these questions are helpful for people in my audience who might also want to have conversations with with people who who have differences from them. So the the first question that I had here is how would you describe your political and social worldview? Big <laughs> okay. picture. So big. It's, it's huge. I know. Big big picture. I'm like, "Oh, how detailed do you want to get?" Um 
at first blush, I thought, oh, that's an easy question to answer. But but actually, it's not um, because it's it's so easy to kind of pigeonhole yourself into a well, I'm right. I'm on the right. I'm a conservative. So therefore, expert. But then I, I started reflecting over the years of how I have I have felt homeless politically for a very long time. And I, I do not appreciate that right left dichotomy because I, I feel like it, it oversimplifies human beings who are very complex. Right. And oversimplifies the very complex nature of personally held worldviews. And so politically, I actually found a name for myself and it is a I am a liberal, crunchy conservative. Very good. Very. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this was a huge aha moment in my life when I went, boy, I don't belong anywhere. I don't belong in any of these political parties. Who am I? And so let me just break that down a little bit. I am conservative in the Russell Kirkian sense of the term, meaning that I believe that there are things in culture, things in society that are worth conserving. Why? Because they uphold society. They they give us order. Uh, they give us meaning. Okay. And so that's how I'm a conservative in that 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 facet. I, I would not. I mean, politically, that's a whole other realm to talk about. Um, so, and then I am crunchy <laughs> in that, well, I like essential oils and I like organic food. I'm kind of a sustainable food agriculture person. And You're I lean kind of towards a hippie. More of a, I am. I am a hippie. And I, I lean towards alternative medicine, which those things you don't really associate with conservatives, right? Right. And so when I'm in my conservative friend circle, I am the only one who will be whipping out the essential oils and saying, let's have some kale salad. <laughs> <laughs> um so and they're uh, like very out of place they're they're like this damn queer what what uh, yeah, is like, <laughs> but if they want to know where the raw milk source is they come to ask me right of course i am that way so i i also um interestingly enough call myself liberal and I'm, I'm going to refer very specifically to a very specific definition of the word liberal, going back to the etymology of the word liberal, which is the, the, root, the Greek root word uh, liber, right? Actually, it's Latin. The, the, it's a Latin root word that means liber. And back in the Roman time, liber was actually a biological term that referred to the inner layers of tree bark right? And the tree bark was used to make paper or to write directly on. And so the word liber became associated with those who could read, write, engage in any form of, of interaction, economic interaction, uh, requiring the written word, okay? And I know uh, most people couldn't read. And so those who could read and write were those who were free. So liber is the root word for liberty and library and you know all of these terms that that we associate with freedom and so when i say i am a liberal i'm referring back to that idea of liber meaning that it's more than just being literate and educated liber is someone who is an individual who can think deeply and broadly on multiple topics right they understand history they know their place in history and they can use their gift of reason to understand the natural laws that are in place and to live live them out as person who's libraries also understands revelation and and shapes their life around that uh, so that's what i mean by i am a liberal crunchy conservative and when you um, say the word revelation what does that mean Ah, another another wonderful word. And once again, I'm going to refer back 
to uh, Russell Kirk. He's one of my favorite um, political thinkers. And he defines revelation uh, as the unveiling of truths, okay, that men could not have attained from simple experiences in this world. It is a communication of knowledge from source, from a source that transcends simple ordinary experience. Okay. okay. So it's that transcendent knowledge. Okay. I would I would classify reason is what we have in here, our own capacities, and that revelation is something beyond that. Um, so that forms my definition of a political philosophy and you ask, there's a two part to that question and the first, the second part was socially yes i would consider myself a social conservative i believe mm-hmm. in marriage between a man and a woman love you my brother but that's oh, what of i course. believe no i love you too it's okay i accept <laughs> yes. all he- i accept all heterosexuals despite their moral failings so it's okay <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh thank you for accepting me that makes me feel better <laughs> um so I'm being a social conservative. That means I am I am pro-life. And but, but then at the same time, I love the environment and I think we need to take care of it. And so yet again, I have that quandary of I, I don't quite know where I fit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And there's a lot of overlap that I have with you there. I mm-hmm. I do think of myself as a liberal. So mm-hmm. when people ask me now, what what are your core principles? I I think of my core principles as being liberal principles, and I mean that in the old philosophical sense, a commitment to the fundamental dignity of the individual, the belief that the individual is the most important unit of society. And that's something that I very much believe is that the individual is the most important unit of society. And then institutions are what maintain our social structure. And institutions that compri- that are comprised of individuals maintain the exchange of knowledge. And so I'm very protective of institutions. I'm very protection protective of institutions like peer review, like democracy, like journalistic institutions and the journalistic foundations that help us understand truth. Everything that, that Jonathan Rauch calls the constitution of knowledge, what he calls liberal science. And for people who want to know what that is, I did two episodes with Jonathan Rauch, one called Uncanceling Ourselves and then one called The Constitution of Knowledge. And both of those give a pretty thorough explanation of, I think, my philosophy. And so the the fundamental dignity of the individual, the right to free speech and the, the, the importance of free speech, you know, just very basic stuff. And I think in terms of my ethics, I'm very utilitarian in, in maximizing the well-being of conscious creatures. I think maximizing the well-being of conscious creatures is pretty central for me. And socially, I am very much of the left. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like over the over recent years, I've I've slowly moved towards the center, act, actually, philosophically and politically. And so I think that I'm just kind of a normie liberal in, in my foundations. And, and but socially, I would say I am extremely progressive. And so we have clashed over things like abortion in particular. And we and of course, I am I am pro gay marriage. And uh, and I'm sure that we have lots of other divergent views socially, even as I feel like we have a lot of convergence 
on some of the core principles, which is what I find so interesting, actually, about the conversations that we have of, oh, the Venn diagram between us is actually quite large. <laughs> like, like that overlap yeah. between <laughs> us is that overlap between us is actually quite significant. There are some significant differences. I don't believe in I don't believe in revelation. I don't I don't think that revelation is a thing that is helpful uh, to humanity. But I think other than that, when you were describing your core principles, I I think that, you know, I would quibble with with some of it. I would quibble with some of the wording and I would want to reframe some of it. And I would want to, like, you know, kind of recapture it within my own framework. But I think I'm there with you on a lot of it, even as socially we're very divergent. And I find that very interesting. Yes. Um, yes. Well, I'll, I'll forgive you for all those moral failings, just yes. as you forgive me. Absolutely. <laughs> um, right, right. And, and there are points that I'll quibble with, too. But. And by the way, that is what pluralism and democracy means. OK, so here's here's a question. If you could wave a wand, how would you reshape America and what would you change about the culture and politics of the United States? <laughs> that is a phenomenally great question. And I, I actually uh, had to sit back and really think about that and, one. And by the way, uh, by the way, dear listeners, if you want to really so so very often people will say, oh, I'm progressive or oh, I'm conservative. If you just ask them. And I think the best follow up question to that is, OK, if you were president, what would you do? What does what do your political views look like as a matter of policy? What would you change about America and what would you keep the same? And that is actually a much better question to get to the heart of what someone believes rather than just a surface description of, oh, I'm a progressive or whatever. Yeah. So, so to answer it in that light, if I was president of the United States, I would be a strict constitutionalist in okay. the originalist, in, in the original sense. And I can say that because I've spent years studying the Constitution and the founding of the American Republic. I, I take issue with actually calling the United States a democracy because it's not. It was not founded as a democracy. It was founded as a democratic, a democratic republic, republic, federal yes. republic. Yes, federal, right? And and so, um, but that that's a that's a side. That's a that's another conversation, right? Um, but in in a bigger picture sense, if I could wave a wand and change the landscape or reshape America, I would I would call her back. Her being the United States, back to her roots of order. See, societies don't just happen. And freedom and liberty and prosperity don't just happen. They're prerequisites. This is, uh, I've done a lot of thinking, reading about this. They're prerequisites required to take place in a society in order for that society to be free and to function and to get along with each other, right? And the, the American Republic is very, very unique in the history of the world. There's two roots of American order that have deep, deep historical, I mean, they, they go back centuries. And so those, one, one root is reason, the gift of reason, and we find that going all the way back to Athens and Rome, right? The, the Greco-Roman inheritance that we have. But there's also a route that goes all the way back to Jerusalem, and that is back to that, that idea of revelation. My, my study of, of history and of the founding of this nation and, and rereading a lot of the original source documents that, that our founders read in order to form this nation, I am 100% convinced that revelation is a very real thing. And so those two roots, okay, reason and revelation, gave the context on which we could build this society, okay? And those roots are really old. They go back centuries and it took lots of bloodshed and lots of conversations and lots of um, conflict to, 
to fine tune and hone these ideas that we now call America. Because I, I believe that America, yes, it's a place. There's geographical boundaries. Well, kind of we have boundaries now, but not really. That's a whole other topic. But that ultimately America is an idea. It's an ideal. Okay. And that ideal is the ideal of liberty. And liberty has roots. Those roots are reason and revelation. So uh, I could go on about that, but that's a, a quick, quick answer right there. Okay, so so you said that there are two foundations, reason, and then what was the other one? Revelation. Reason and revelation. Okay, and so in order to to what you would do to to kind of reshape America, if you is you would bring it back to those two core principles of revelation yes. and reason. So what would that look like? Well, that's exactly what I'm writing my book about. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, a good segue into that, right? What would that look like? That is that is the question, isn't it? And, and how do you do that in our modern culture, okay, in our context where we have a, a pluralistic society, okay? Uh, and, and as a side note, I don't believe we can have a functioning pluralistic society at its foundational root, okay? That's another conversation. How, what, what would that look like? So on the reason side, that's the easier one to answer, is I would reintroduce the idea of LIBOR, uh, that type of education that, that um, teaches people how to think, introduces everyone to the great works of Western culture, because it is, un, you know, Western thought has been the culture that has created these ideas of democracy and liberty and equality, you know, all of that. But it's not, that's not just the only source of those ideas. Western culture was the, the means through which these ideas were nurtured and thought through, but really the source of ideas is found in revelation, right? That, that we are created beings for, by a God who loves us. And because of that, that is our identity. It means that we have worth in that. That is that idea of revelation. The practical side of things, I'm not quite sure. I am still researching that question. So when I publish my book, I can answer that question in fullness for you. I appreciate that. Actually, I really appreciate that honesty. Yeah. So, so when we use the word Western, what does that mean? So Western civilization, Western culture, and I just want to put up a flare, put up a warning sign that to a lot of people online, that, that can sound very chauvinist, Western show, that can sound like Western chauvinism, that can sound like Western supremacy. It can sound like a, you know, the Proud Boys, for example, call themselves Western chauvinists. So what does that mean when you say Western culture? Okay, that's that's a fantastic question, and it does need to be clarified. Uh, first off, I am totally not ashamed of my cultural heritage. Okay, and I I am Western, and so what does that mean? It means centuries upon centuries of thought that originated in the the ancient Greek and Roman world. Okay, these ideas of uh, individuality, of personal responsibility, of rights. Okay, of reason, of natural law. Okay, so the, the great Roman statesman Cicero talked about natural law as being the, the foundational basis for right human law, right? So these ideas that were, were kind of come, came up with in the hot, the, the hot house of, uh, of, of the, the Greco Roman world and then spread because of the Roman civilization through other parts of Europe and um, Western Asia 
and North Africa, and then were nurtured during the Middle Ages in, in the monasteries, actually, uh, during the, the scholastic, with, with the scholastics there. And then reemerged during the Enlightenment, okay, these ideas of, of um, human reason and equality and justice, okay, those ideas have roots going all the way back to, to the Greek and Roman world and the Hebraic tradition as well. We can't forget about the Judeo-Christian influence in these ideas as well. And so we, we started with the more pagan ideas there with the Greek and Roman. And then during the Middle Ages, that's when those pagan ideas were were thought through and wrestled with along with the Hebraic uh, Christian tradition and were, were refined and then came into full flu, uh, fruition there with with the Protestant Reformation that led into the Enlightenment. There's just some amazing history to our ideas and where they came from. So when I say Western tradition, that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't exclude everybody else. It doesn't minimize the fact that Asia and Africa had advanced civilizations that were flourishing and wrestling with ideas too. It just so happens that it's the Western tradition uh, that gave birth to the United States. Right. It gave birth to this idea of ordered liberty. And I'm very specific about my de definition of ordered liberty. Um, that means something. And that we have a very unique inheritance. It's not perfect. We're messy. We've made mistakes, right? Just like every other human civilization. Um, but there's something special about what we have. And it's not just because my color, my skin color is white. The Western tradition is open to any human being who wants to grow in rational thought and uh, step into the fullness of what it means to be to be free, to be self-governing. Mm. So another important question, and this is one that I think we touched on, and this for me I think is kind of the crux of the matter here. Do you think it is possible for a pluralistic society to truly exist? Oh, this is such a great question. I love this question. And at first I was like, well, yes. Okay. And, I, and but then I started thinking about it. Okay. So yes, on the surface level, yes. And that, and so I think you and I are a really good example of this because you just, just in your introduction a little earlier, you said socially, we, we are very, very different, but we have some very similar common core beliefs, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, and that is why we're able to have constructive dialogue. Okay, so I was I was thinking about this question. And I realized on the surface, you can have a pluralistic society if your definition of pluralism is lots of different races. Okay, lots of different you know job opportunities, different expressions. You know, some people are artists, some people are doctors, and some people are more on the liberal spectrum. You know, type of thing. Yes. However, every single society has to be held together by an animating spirit. And, and what I mean by that is that in the past, all, all cultures have been held together like by a common race, a common history, a, um, a common, like a shared history, okay? And that's what held them together. So you could have individuality within that culture, but what held them together was that what, what I call an animating spirit, that, that, that or, or a soul, the, the, the national soul, which was uh, expressed through either a common religion or a common um, history, et cetera, right? Well, in our modern day, 
when we have lots of people moving in and out, right, who do not share a common religion, who do not share a common history, uh, who in some cases do not share a common language or even a, a common ethnic character, is it possible? Because at the base of every society, the, that, and I'm talking like the deepest foundational root, there has to be something that holds it all together, right? What is that thing that holds it all together? In the past, it's been ethnic identity or religion, right? But here in the United States, what holds us together, okay? And it is my, um, it is my thesis that we've actually lost the American animating spirit, and that is the idea of ordered liberty, okay? We no longer understand what that means. We no longer practice it. We no longer have the cultural accoutrements required to maintain it. And so our pluralism is actually going to destroy us unless we, we recapture that that uh that ordered liberty and that, so when i'm talking about roots of american order reason and revelation those are the two roots that give rise to ordered liberty and so i agree with your assessment earlier about uh, that that culture of retreat and how dangerous that is it's because it's breaking down further the the ability to come to a to a place of 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 realizing hey we do have a, a deep foundational togetherness that one thing that is the same across. So there's my very complicated answer to a very complicated question. <laughs> Absolutely. So so it sounds like you have a, a pretty apocalyptic vision for America. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is the. Yeah. So that's the message that I'm getting. And here, I think, is where the more interesting stuff lies for me, because I think that there's no going back. I think that there is no returning, not just for our country, but for the world, to a to the kind of unifying principles that to the kind of unifying energies that that brought order to societies in the past, right? And it's true. I mean, it is, it is just a fact that in a cult, you know, in the Middle Ages, there wasn't there wasn't the world, and then there was religion. There was just the truth and that truth was Catholicism. Yeah. And so the separate category of religion existing kind of outside the mundane or outside the secular, that didn't exist for most that hasn't existed for most societies. There was simply the truth. And the truth was an, an, an order to civilization or an order to culture that was you know very self-contained I, I guess you could say the you know Catholicism I, is the first example that comes to mind because that's what I'm most familiar with that world is gone we are I don't mm -hmm. I don't think we are ever going to get back to the to that world and I don't think it's desirable to get back to that world and what we're left with is the choice to figure out how to exist in plurality or die that's that's yeah. the choice and I don't think that you disagree with me on that. Oh no, no, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we should all be Luddites, <laughs> you know, no, that you, you are correct. We, the only way forward is forward and yeah. history has happened and we are where we are now. Um, but I, what I am saying is that there are some priceless lessons and principles that are in history and that are embedded in our human nature and that are a part of the, the wisdom of the ages that we do need to reapply. And without those, we will dissolve into anarchy and chaos. And I, I, I would say um, it, it's, it's either chaos or, or we're, we're, we're doomed to tyranny. Those are the two options, tyranny or chaos, uh, or anarchy. 
And the, the great historical trick or question is how do you maintain that narrow path between tyranny and, and, and anarchy? And that's a hard question. And that's really what I'm wrestling with is what are those eternal truths and those principles that lead to that narrow path between the two? Uh, and I, I have a very, very strong suspicion that has a lot to do with reason and revelation and, and re-implementing those two ideals those two roots back into our society. I think my answer to this, and you know, I'm, you are, in case it isn't obvious to my listeners, you are much more well-read in the classics than I am. But for me, I think that one of the real innovations of the Enlightenment is that our institutions harnesses the disunity and creates a forward momentum. So this is, and this is what Jonathan Rausch points out in both the Constitution of Knowledge and Kindly Inquisitors, is that the, the genius of the election game, the genius of the science game, the genius of the peer review game, the, the genius of these institutions is not that they require everyone to get on the same page, but yes. that they harness a that they harness the differences so that instead of those differences tearing society apart, they propel society forward. And so to me, liberal science does not require everyone to ideologically or, or even philosophically get on the same page. It requires the institutions to work. And with one caveat that I think that what does need to be maintained is a respect for the constitution of knowledge and for the basic principles of society, which is, which are very basic, like there is a fact of the matter outside ourselves and it is real. That that is a fundamental revelatory idea in human history and that we that there is a fact of the matter and we can find what that is through testing, through observation, through dialogue. We have to have a commitment to that. We have to have a commitment to when we make a mistake, we admit it. We have to have a commitment to we don't lie. So we do have to have a commitment to various principles that allow the that that allow the constitution of knowledge to work. And so I think that we can take on the on the one hand a Richard Dawkins a godless heathen and then we can take on the other hand a very traditional theistic catholic let's say father baron from Word on Fire Ministries in the Catholic Church. You can't get you can't get more different than that. But I think that as long as there's a core agreement and I don't even care where they get those core agreements. I don't I don't even care. So for the conservative Christian, it comes from or I not conservative, for the traditional Christian, that would come from the from order that would come from the natural order that would come from revelation for someone like Steven Pinker or for Dawkins it is rather here are the things that humanity here here are the rules of society that humanity has discovered that work best for us they have come to the same agreements of don't lie tell the truth there is a fact of the matter outside of us there is such a thing as a real world and we can discover it by way of by certain methods and there is a human nature there is such a thing as a human nature that we can discover that aligns with fl human flourishing i don't care yes. where people come i don't care how people get there as long as they arrive there and at that point, the constitution of knowledge can do its work and can harness those differences. So, so what, what you're talking about is reminiscent of what Cicero wrote, 
the the Roman statesman uh, who let's see he was living about 40 50 BC right and that's what he wrote about he said that there is knowledge out there that human beings can grasp that's yes. a, and so you just exactly. articulated perfectly but he did say something else very very critical he said that reason alone cannot make men good and so my question is where does the moral impetus come from to want to do these things that you just explained. Mm -hmm. Where does it come from? And that is the role of revelation, right? That there has to be this something else, that we are accountable to something else, um, that human that humanity is accountable to something else beyond our own reason. And the reason why reason cannot make men good is because human beings are deeply flawed. At least that is my very strong belief. The history of the world has proven to me that we are really messed up. And so we can trust our reason to a degree, but at the end of the day, man, are we messed up. And I really want to say a really bad word and put in a, you know, we're fucked up, right? But I'll say it for you. We're fucked up. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. You're welcome, (laughs) sister. I'm here for you. Whenever, listen, here's, here's what I'll do is I will record all of the swear words you want to say, but can't. And then you can just hit play. And, and it'll be me going, motherfucker! It'll be me going... I love it! Okay. It'll be me going, bitch! <laughs> Fuck! And all the, all the bad insults, you know, I just need you to speak them for me. But see, here we go. It's like, okay, back to my point is that human beings are deeply flawed. And I, <laughs> I firmly believe that... Um, We have been given this gift of reason and we need to use it. Science is an incredible gift, but that gift came from something. It came from somewhere. And we as fallen human beings, wait, I don't like to use that word. That's you can use it. You can use as, it. People know what you mean. You're okay. a Christian. You don't need to hide from that. Now, I, I, I also want to speak the language that that's understood. <sighs> yeah, that, that we're just messed up. Yeah. And I don't trust the fullness of my capacity of thinking because I know that I can think myself in circles. I can think myself into deception and I can think myself wrong. Which, so which, that's why we as humans need revelation. Yeah. So I have I have, I have two thoughts there. I think what you call fallenness, I call cognitive cognitive glitches. So I like the illustration of ants. So an ant on its own is lost. It goes in circles. It can't function. That is that is me as an individual thinking. We didn't get to the moon. The, the greatest innovations of the human mind is never a single person thinking. And we have this myth of, you know, the Einstein kind of alone in his room thinking. When I, when the reality is alone, we're very poor thinkers and we cannot rely on our reason because our minds are so riddled with cognitive biases. So I think what a lot of people call fallenness, I, I call cognitive bias and, and I can't ever get away from them. They are, they are deeply embedded in the human psyche, and which is why, in my view, we have to rely on principles that that force us mm-hmm. to work together that force us to think together and i and i but i want to kind of acquiesce to a point that maybe some of my fellow atheists wouldn't want me to which is for me i acknowledge that where this where this stuff comes from and for me reason itself where does that come or or more more particularly the rules of logic mm-hmm. the rules of mathematics the laws of mathematics. So if you gaze into a Mandelbrot set and just look at the extraordinary complexity and beauty 
of a Mandelbrot set, which is just a, a mathematical construct that somehow exists in nature. It is inexplicable. I don't know where that comes from. I have I don't know. And so I am 100% willing to say that there is something numinous and mysterious about some mm -hmm. of the faculties of the human mind. And I yeah. and I I hesitate to call it divine, but there is something profoundly mystical to me about there's something profoundly mystical to me about the the these foundational structures of the universe and most of all about consciousness itself and that the most immediate mm -hmm. experience yes. we all have the, the most immediate experience that we all have there's nothing more immediate there's nothing more tangible and more immediate than consciousness and that to me is you know science the mm -hmm. philosophers of consciousness and and scientists call it the hard problem for a reason Mm -hmm. It is a hard problem. It is problem. a hard problem. It is the fun. It is. it is a fundamentally hard problem, and I don't have an answer to that problem. I so it's so, a glorious mystery. It is. <laughs> it is. And when you say that that we can't be good on our own, or or, or mm -hmm. reason alone cannot help us be good, and even to me, a lot of the mysteries that reason itself yields to us. For example, the wonders, the wonders of science, the wonders of consciousness, the facts of the universe that are truly inexplicable to me. I'm willing to admit when I when I gaze at those things, I have an experience that I can only call divine awe. And if if uh, if people want to call that the experience of God, I am personally OK with that. Where I struggle is when it gets into specific truth claims specific claims about the material world, about things that are unfalsifiable, about things that I cannot sign off on either because I wasn't there. So, for example, I have a box right here. What's in this box? Do you know? Air. Well, you would be right about that. But more specifically, what are the <laughs> items in this box? No idea. The truth claims of religion are this box to me. I don't mm -hmm. know what's inside it. So when someone says the resurrection of, the, of Christ literally happened, I'm like, Wow, that's big if true. Mm -hmm. But nothing I have read and nothing I have seen can demonstrate to me, has demonstrated to me, that I have any good reason to believe that because at the end of the day, that is a, that is a thing that happened in the material world and it is, it is just as subject to the rules of reason. It is just as subject to the rules of truth acquisition as what what is in mm -hmm. this box. And incidentally, what's in this box is a Magic the Gathering deck uh, oh, with Will, we Will Help the Rock Cleaver is my commander. He's a zombie. He is he is a three three <laughs> zombie who makes who makes more zombies when they die. And then I swamp my <laughs> opponent. Um, that's what's okay, in that deck. So we've gone from talking about the resurrection to zombies. This is yes, great. Correct. Listen. <laughs> Listen, Jesus is a zombie. He was raised from the dead. Anyway, um, but I, I am one. I think that at the heart of religion is a profound awe at the at, at mm -hmm. the inexplicable realities. And so Pythagoras's theorem, you know, the, there is extraordinary beauty and elegance in that. Mm -hmm. For me, that's where it ends. That for me, that is as far as I can go. Is and I don't yeah. and I don't know where they came from. I don't know, yeah. and that to me is the most honest and sincere answer I can give. And I respect that. Yeah. I really do. I really respect that. 
And, and I would say that is where the role of revelation steps in, okay. right? It's when, when we get to the end of our human capacities, that is where revelation steps in. And the, the first step of allowing revelation to step in is to acknowledge the mystery and to say, I don't get it. Yeah. This is beyond my human capacity. And that is when the door opens for, I'm going to use the word if, but I know that other thing that's out there is, is allowed to come in. But we got to get there first. We got to be able to admit the, the, the mystery. We got to be able to admit the limits of our own human understanding, right? We've got to be able to admit that, hey, resurrection is this crazy idea. And where in the world did that come from, right? Because that's where revelation steps in. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I think that for me, the, 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 the game that I play, the rules that I follow intellectually that, that work the best for me exclude the option of that kind of revelation. Because then how, yes, do, because then how do I evaluate other, any other revelation? So, so here's, here's where I get mixed up is I, if I am to accept the revelation of if I'm to accept the, the, the core doctrinal revelations of Christianity, then how am I to evaluate the core doctrinal revelations of other religions that are equally unfalsifiable? And the only way that I can do that is to, is to resort back to the rules of, of of truth telling that I have established for myself. So I hear you. Yeah. So I and so for me I I do think that that there is an unfortunate trend for a lot of atheists to exclude the the wonder. I think that's unfortunate. But I yes. can't, but and I, I also I and I but I also just cannot go beyond the wonder until the next chain of reasoning is established for me. I hear a concern that if we lose that divine revelation, if we if we mm -hmm. lose, especially Christian and Jewish revelation, uh, more more specifically monotheistic. Monotheistic. There is one. Uh, yes. Monotheistic. That that society crumbles, right? Yes. Is, am I correct? Yes. That's what, exactly what you're hearing. So what happens when society doesn't crumble? Well, but they do. That's what history teaches. Whenever you remove that aspect of revelation that aspect that there is a there is a god meaning there are standards and there's standards of of of, of behavior and expectation accountability when you remove that out of a society that's when things collapse and we are actually as a nation on the verge of collapse right now um it'll, it takes years Is, isn't it takes that time so isn't that just the law of entropy though, where everything collapses, yeah. all things fall apart. Perhaps we should define collapse. Can, can we define what, of what course. we mean by collapse? Certainly. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, what's your definition of collapse, so, societal so, collapse? So, so societal collapse to me means a civilization stops existing and or okay. and slash okay. or a society stops functioning. Those are two different things. So they stop okay. generating, yes, they, they, they stop generating meaningful knowledge. They stop me generating mm -hmm. well-being for their citizens they stop generate you know so on and so forth right so there is a there yeah. is a breakdown now i am 100% willing to not not just willing but enthusiastically will say that i think that modern society has created unique well-being for its citizens in a way yes. that is unprecedented 
right? And the vast majority of the human race is extraordinary. In, or, 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 or let yes. me rephrase. The vast majority of the human race is an extraordinary story of suffering that is now being reversed mm-hmm. in tremendous ways. It is better to be alive now than yes, it has ever been in of any other point in human yeah. history, right? I don't. And there's think, a reason for that. There's a I, reason for it. And I agree that there's a reason. I think the reason is the constitution of knowledge, which is purely secular. And I would say it's ordered liberty. Okay. Which is a, which is a different thing. Yes. Um, okay. So what's your definition of collapse? Collapse. Okay. So yeah, you have it's it's multi layered. By the way, the by the way, we're we're at one. Are you okay to go for a bit longer? Oh, oh my gosh! It's already been an hour. This has been delightful. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so are, can we go for till about one thirty? My time. So, so, yes. okay. That's okay. Fine. Perfect. That's fine. Um, what was the question? Oh, collapse. collapse the, the, the definition of collapse. Yeah. So, so you have those, those civilizations that just basically disappear off the, the, the face of the earth. Uh, and then you have the definition of a collapse where things just stop working. I would say when a nation collapse, the, my, my definition would be is when it stops doing what it was originally formed to do. Okay. For example, the true Roman civilization collapsed when Caesar Augustus became emperor. That was when Rome no, it was no longer a republic, but turned into an empire. At that moment, that is when Rome lost its animating spirit. That's when it lost its original founding vision and purpose. The, the Roman virtue was lost. But then it took several more centuries for, the, for it to finally die out, right? Uh, and so that is the moment of that the collapse starts and then the working out of that is manifested in economic failure, in the loss of liberties, in, you know, total societal anarchy and upheaval, right? But it can take centuries. It took Rome centuries, right? So we lost as a nation, I would say we lost our animating spirit around the 19 teens. That was when we were no longer a republic. There was some key changes t- constitutionally that took place that turned us that, that made us no longer a republic. Okay, that was on the political front, the constitutional front. Um, anyway, so there, there's my definition okay. for, uh, for you. It sounds like you, so, okay, so it sounds like in order for civilization to work, it has to be aligned with ordered liberty and central to that is reason and revelation. Yes. This is the part that I guess concerns me is how, how do you get people there? How do you get people there? And that is the question, isn't it? So because because and, here's here's what concerns me. When I so when I see someone like Roger Ayer mm-hmm. espouse certain principles and basically claim like uh oh, I mean his oh, I mean everything that he says in his in his in his books, you know, uh, that that we need yeah. to you know order basically order society around a a Christian, you know, his his version mm-hmm. of Christianity basically. Mm-hmm. I read which that. I happen to, to disagree with. Yes. And in, in some respects. Right? I so. So and and he has moved to Hungary in self-exile because he is an ardent defender of Viktor Orban, who, okay. as far as I am concerned, is just a theocrat. What concerns me is the 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 pluralism the 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 pluralism horse is not going to go back into the barn and when, when i see efforts to put it back in the barn i see that as nothing but theocracy the only how how so my question to you is how do 
you because this is very urgent, right? This is very morally yes, urgent. Yes, this is, is this is, it is you know in in your worldview, this is a matter of life and death, and not just life and death, but the, but a matter of civilization. This is a matter of apocalypse, yes. right? Okay, so this is a matter yes, of apocalypse. So this is very urgent. How do you avert catastrophe without theocracy? Mm, because, well, I don't agree with theocracy. Okay, so I don't like that, I, and I assume I so. I, I assume so, but but yeah. how, but how? Okay, so. There are how many millions of Hindus in this country? There are how many millions of atheists? There are how many millions of Muslims? There are yeah. how many Muslim, you know, there are how many millions of, of pagans and atheists and Buddhists? And it's a diverse country. So, yes, it is. So, we have how this, do we do it? So, what is a strategy for this that does not ultimately rely on coercion, on removing the right mm -hmm. removing hard-earned rights from say gay people for marriage mm -hmm. how what right, so let, let me answer that yes let me answer that because Stephen, that is a profound question it really is and it's so urgent you've said it and so i want to talk about what's ordered liberty okay. okay let's back up a little bit and and make that statement of in order for a civilization to stick together or a society to stick together we have to have something that holds us together and the unique American inheritance is that idea of ordered liberty. And I think most people, once I define it, will go, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's agree about that, okay? And then we'll figure out all the details about everything else. But we've got to agree about that one foundational I, thing. In I this agree idea with that. Ordered liberty. I agree with right. that. To me, okay. those to me, that's the constitution of knowledge. So I'm okay, and I don't care. Like I said earlier, I don't care how people get there. I don't care if a goddamn elf walks out of a cave and gives you a fucking you know mushroom, gives you some psilocybin, and you tr and you trip uh -huh. balls, and you have this you know apocalyptic vision of you know a, a gigantic jeweled arachnid that is also god that is also an alien that will impart the that that imparts the message to you that uh, -huh. uh of the, the the rules of of liberty and you know the constitution of knowledge i don't care if that's how someone gets there what matters is that we agree on the same game that we're playing the same rules of yes. the game that's what matters most to me and i don't care how people get there yeah. and, and right now there isn't that agreement uh, and we can, there's lots of reasons why we don't have that agreement as a society. Partly it's because we don't talk to each other. Correct. Um, but yep. let, let me go back to that idea of, of ordered liberty. Okay. And so, so the normal definition that we are now, I guess, practicing as a society for liberty is this idea of um, it's freedom, which is general lack of restraint, rightfully exercised. Okay. So basically the, I, the modern idea of freedom, liberty, all that is that I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt you or violate your liberties. That is actually not ordered liberty. Okay. So I, I think, think we need to define that. And let's, let's kind of take a few steps back to help us with our definition with this acknowledgement that human society is always on the cusp of, of chaos and order, or, or that, 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 that there's this wrestling match between chaos and order. Right. So we have chaos, which can divulge into anarchy. Are, is this, is this a reference? Liberty. Is this a reference to Jordan Peterson, to his chaos and order? Kind thing? of, but not really. I, okay. I, I took some of his stuff and then thought through it and went, oh, there's more because there's actually okay. two different kinds of chaos. Right. 
there's the chaos that causes destruction, right? Bombs, war, all of that. And there's that there's that creative chaos. There's that that unknown realm, that that place that caused the 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 adventurer out there to that place of discovery, right? So we got to acknowledge those two different kind kinds of chaos, right? We want the creative chaos, we don't want the destructive chaos, right? And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's order. Order is really good. We need order. Order is a one of the first needs of human beings, right? But there's two different kinds of order, right? There is the um, there's the tyrannical order that snuffs out creativity yeah. and growth and productivity, right? Okay, but then also the legitimate order, the type of order that gives structure. Okay, so ordered liberty is this idea of landing somewhere in the middle of those two things, right? Of playing that balancing act of having enough creative chaos so that we can actually produce and be creative and, and grow, but also having that legitimate order, okay? That right order so that we can have structure and not devolve into tyranny, okay? Because um, destructive or, or illegitimate order leads to tyranny, destructive chaos leads to anarchy. And civilization is always on the precipice of either of those two, of, of falling into either of those two. So the big question is, how do you stay on that narrow path without falling off? And right now, as our nation, we are, we have fallen into tyranny, okay? In some very subtle ways, but it's great. And it's very scary to watch as someone who is, uh, who's a student of history. Uh, we are repeating some things that do not lead to good places. <laughs> um, so I kind of forgot what the original question no, no, was because no, I got on the roll. That's good. That's, <laughs> no, this is perfect. And, and I mean, there's so much that I want to respond to there, but I let's, let's move on to the next section though, where okay. are there any questions that you have for me? I had a lot and then they all fell out of my brain. No worries. No worries. <laughs> let's, so, so I'm, uh, are there any that you can think of? Not, not immediately. Um, Gosh, I should have written them down in the moment. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, I've just really been enjoying this conversation and just soaking in everything yeah, you're saying. Definitely, definitely. Same, me too. And I think that it is okay, and in fact it is necessary, for people to have strong beliefs about the way civilization should work. I think that mm -hmm. that is acceptable. I, I worry when... So, so when people say that they that they believe that, you know, America should be ordered towards, you know, Christian, you know, fundamental Christian principles and that, and so on and so forth. I, I hear that as, as a theocracy. I know that you are opposed to theocracy, but I, I, I often fail to see how it could result in anything other than theocracy. If, if it, and we are not, you know, as, as Nietzsche declared, God is dead, and we don't mean that literally, but we mean God is the ordering principle to society. God is dead, mm -hmm. and we are living in the aftermath of that, um, of God as an ordering principle. And I don't know how we get back to that without coercion. And the Well, why, why do we need to have a theocracy in order to implement Christian morality? Why, why is it Christian morality equals theology? Wouldn't it? Is that the case? Doesn't wouldn't Christian theology necessitate, or wouldn't Christian morality necessitate Christian morality? Because this gets to me also to the question of what is Christian morality? What does it mean to be a Christian? Because I think that a lot of traditional Christians would say that for someone to be to follow in Christian in, in the footsteps of Christian ethics, it isn't enough to be a good person. 
it isn't enough to not lie. It isn't enough to be ordered towards a pr- particular, you know, view of the world. It, it that it it has to be more than that. Some one has to believe in the core principles of Christian ethics or or, or of, of Christian theology to have a confessional faith to say Jesus Christ is Lord and here's why to say Jesus Christ is you know was resurrected on the third day and you know he he died he went to hell he 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 went and and then he rose again on the third day and he was born of a virgin and here are his teachings and I don't so I think that a lot of traditional Christians would say that that morality that that you can't have one without the other. You can't have a strong Christian morality with also without also a belief in those ordering claims about the world. So how but we cannot coerce people to to believe any particular kind of theology. We and I so, would agree. Yes. And can can I jump in here really quick? Of course. Because, of course. So right, right now we're talking about Christianity. Yes. But take any religious stance. Yes. Okay. And you can put anything and say Islam equals theocracy, Hinduism equal, because our religious slant will dictate how we act and how we interact with each other on a, on a political level. So this idea of you can't legislate morality, all legislation is an expression of someone's morality. I the agree question with that. Is who's, is who's, who's, but, who's but I think it's and also, so I'm, go on, go on, sorry. Well, I'm, I'm just going to go back on the historical track record of, and, and I'm, I'm not saying like the direct Christian faith has to like have direct, but, but those undergirding principles that have arisen actually out of the Judeo-Christian heritage of individual rights, of personal sovereignty, of the ideas of justice and equality. Those are intrinsically Judeo-Christian ideas that that were blended with the Greco-Roman world, okay? Those principles give rise to our, our country. And so this, this question of if, if we're going to become, you know, a Christian nation that will automatically become a theocracy, I think it's flawed and not correct because of that second root of American order, the root of reason, right? Um, there's so much here that can be unpacked, um, but I, I, am, I, I do not want a Christian theocracy. In the so, same way, I don't want an Islamic theocracy or a Hindu theocracy or a secular theocracy, which unfortunately is actually what we have right now is a secular theocracy. Hmm. So anyway, food for I, thought for so, later. So right? if so if Christian so so if if we are defining Christian morality as what I would consider core liberal principles, um, mm-hmm. if if we are if that's how we're defining it, I I don't. I think I I would quibble with tracing a direct line between that and Christianity, um, but okay. I'm but I'm willing to but I'm abs- but if if we say you know core liberal philosophical principles are actually Christian in origin and and a nation that follows those principles is in, is in fact Christian, I guess I'm okay with that as long as it allows for those rules of philosophical liberalism to actually flourish. Yes. And I don't and care. And that's the gift of Greece. Yeah. And, and that's I the don't, gift of Greece. So would you say that, so would you say that Greece was a Christian nation? No, no. So, so what, what I'm saying is it's that marriage between reason and revelation, those two okay. roots of, okay. Cause uh, reason alone is not enough to make men good. Whereas revelation is what makes men good, but it's not enough to create a stable, you know, democratic republic society. You need both. Have you, you need that balance of both? 
So I think that we, so so I'm we absolutely need priors, right? So we can we can start with a prior that does have to basically stand alone, or else we fall into solipsism. So. Mm-hmm. For example, Wait, what, what, that last word you said, solips, that fell, fall solips, into solipsism, absurd, unknowing. So, so it's okay. it's an absurd. How do I know that I'm not a brain in a vat? In other words, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that. How do I know that your consciousness exists? I don't. Yeah, it, it, you don't. Extreme solipsism is basically saying, you know, it, it's taking skepticism to an extreme degree and saying we don't have. So, so at some point we have to take a prior. We have to say, here is a prior that I hold. And it, and sometimes those priors are inexplicable, right? Sometimes those priors say, sometimes those, sometimes those priors are inexplicable. And I think that one of my priors is a other people exist, consciousness and other Mm -hmm. people exist, and it is better for, it is better for them to be happy than to be than than to suffer that suffering is if it is not in the service of future well-being is bad and we should reduce suffering so we can take a prior and that's a philosophical prior and then we can progress from that towards uh using the rules of reason so would you say that that a that prior is revelation mm-hmm. would you say that the acceptance of of my prior is a form of revelation because I take it to be true. I take it to yes. be true that yeah. that that well, I I take it to be true that other human beings that other human beings have a conscious consciousness that can suffer. That and that society is better if we reduce meaningless suffering. Okay, that's and, a, and that, where did that idea come from? Where right? did that? So and, yes, and to me, to me, Revelation. I don't know. I don't know where that idea where that idea came from, but I feel like I don't need to know in order to say that it is mm-hmm. good. And I think that this is a fundamental difference of intuition between the two of us where I think you I think that maybe you feel like the that pri- the prior itself falls apart if we don't know where it came from, right? I do know where it comes from. Okay, so but, here, but, but, but here's the essence of the revelation. Yeah. But if we don't know, but okay, so let's let's take let's if we, if as a society, I mean, we don't know where a prior okay, comes as a society. from, then, then as a society, we can't hold on, th- then the commitment to that prior will fall apart because it does kind of, it, it is kind of suspended in midair. We have decided that this is, I have decided that in order to lead a functional existence, I assume that other people have consciousness and I will treat them as if that is true, even though yes. philosophically yes. I can go down a rabbit hole and live an unfunctional life. If I like, how do I know any, you know, how do I know that reality is real? How do I know that that conscious minds exist? So I don't need I don't I, I don't need to have a solid foundation for that prior in order for it to work. I don't need to have a for me. And and I also maybe think civilizationally, we can say it is good for people to not suffer meaninglessly, needlessly. It is good for people to not suffer. And if we take that, then we can apply the rules of reason to create a better society. I think that I am okay with saying we have to have some priors somewhere and yes. ma- 
We do. We have to have some priors somewhere, and I am okay with just stopping there and not having to insert God Mm -hmm. as the foundation for that prior. Whereas it sounds like... Yes, go on. Yeah. Well, and I I would say that that is a dangerous place. Okay. Because when when God is removed, and, and by the way, the essence of revelation is actually a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, right? Um, and so when, when, when the idea of God is removed from a society, well, historically, it doesn't work out very well in the long run. But I just noticed the time, and you said like until it's a certain time, but it, yes. I, I wanted to answer like one of the most important questions, the whole point of our conversation together. Yes. And that was... How can we have such good conversations, even though we really disagree about stuff? Yes, even though we we often butt heads. Um, yeah. So I think, no, that is the most important question. So I think that for me, mm-hmm. I I believe that, hold on, this is one of my kitties. Oh, she just ran away. Hold <laughs> on, let me, let me say, <laughs> hold on just one second. <laughs> this is Eli. He's the fat boy. Oh, um, <laughs> he's cute. But... I really believe that that mutual respect is required in order to have these conversations. I am able to have conversations with people if I respect them. And, you know, I I respect you. And I know that you are a person of good character. I also really love you because you're my big sister. And (laughs) but I I know you to be an intellectually curious and honest and good person. So I am personally far more concerned about about finding people of good character than I am about finding people who agree with me on everything. Because there are people who agree with me yeah. on every single data point, on every single, you know, minuscule thing, but they are people of horrific character. And at the end of the day, I don't want to be aligned with them. So I've I've really ordered my life in such a way that I that I care about character more than I do about opinion than I do about belief. And that I think has served me really well, but it also means that it it keeps me honest. You know, the conservatives in my life keep me honest and I need conservatives in my life because I fundamentally believe that my mind is incomplete. That And I need gay Satanist liberals in my life. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. No, and 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 as so here's the thing as as much as some of what you said alarms me and freaks me out and I think is very wrong. And I'm sure likewise, you know, you <laughs> you said you said in this conversation that that some of my perspectives are a really dangerous place to be. And I appreciate that honesty. As as long as you know, as 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 long as there we are here to kind of keep each other honest and, and as long as we have this view that we need each other in our lives, I think that then those those rules of the game, the rules of, of the constitution of knowledge, which is how we find truth, can kick into action and it can harness the differences between us and it can have a moderating effect on both of us and then it can uh, lead to a better world. Um, even though yeah. we may, even though we may go to our graves still thinking that the the other is batshit insane, which is fine. You heathen! <laughs> I was going to, I was trying to come up with a sufficient response, and I'm like, what's the what's the Christian version of heathen? But I, you you good person, you no. <laughs> can can I add two points? Uh, yes, please. Two, two important points to, about having conversations uh, with with people of differing views and that is 
I think it's really important to not view the person as the enemy. Yes. Right. We are not to be enemies, uh, but rather the the quote you know enemy is the idea. And so it's that idea or the, the concept of let's wrestle with these ideas, keeping the person separate from their idea. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Um, no, we, we, kill yeah. e- we, we kill each other's hypotheses instead of each other. Yes, and, exactly. And, and that's yeah. critical, critically important. Um, the, the other idea or, or, the, or the other point I wanted to bring up is, is the, the intellectual ability to find those touch points. And, and what, I, what I mean by touch points are those, those principles of common ground, right? Those, those, those points of agreement, those touch points, and then build from there, right? Um, often what I've discovered is that generally our, the, the orthodoxy is there's a lot of touch points. Where we diverge is the orthopraxy how we practice, how we apply these things, right? And so one of the examples I want to bring up is our earlier discussion that we had over text about abortion, right? Our touch point on that was this idea that human life has value. That yeah. was, the, I guess, the orthodoxy. The orthopraxy of, of how, how does that practical is the definition of when does human life start. But my goodness, that first touch point is so important to begin with. And so that, that I think is a skill. That's one of the reasons why I am a classical educator, because the classical method of education teaches people how to ask questions and how to think and how to dig into these, these issues and have civil conversations. And so that's my passion in life. Um, I'll teach your kids. Oh, wait, when you have one. You can teach, you can teach <laughs> you, my cat. I'll teach your kitties. Listen, John and I have been tr- John and I have been working really hard to procreate, and so far nothing has happened. It just doesn't work for some reason. <laughs> it just doesn't happen for some reason. All right, this has been great. Thank you for being my guinea pig. I really appreciate it, and thank you for being what would I I assume would be kind of an uncomfortable situation of you know you're you're sharing your views in front of a a a very Mm -hmm. heathen audience uh a very godless audience Mm -hmm. so i appreciate your time and if you want to do a Mm follow-up episode where you ask me questions let me know yes um where it would be a lot of fun yeah so you can you can write down some questions for me and i will answer them to the best of my ability if you want to do that also dear listeners if you enjoyed this conversation if it made you super mad uh or if it made you very (laughs) happy i'm sorry or somewhere in between then please uh go to my discord server share your thoughts there you can also email me via my website stephenbradfordlong.com uh any final comments before we wrap this up it's been a joy Good. And I, I really enjoy having these conversations. I do too. So yeah. thank you. And we'll keep doing it. And really, this is just like an offshoot of the conversations that we've already been having. I feel like this is mm-hmm. this is just a continuation of the conversations that that we've been having via text and, and in person. So, yeah. all right. Well. That is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.